ready for all the craziness of small business. It's exactly that craziness that makes it exciting and totally unbelievable. Small Business Radio is now on the air with your host, Barry Moltz. Well, thanks for joining this week's radio show. Remember, this is the final word in small business. For those keeping track, this is now show number 727. It's sponsored by Truly Financial, banking that puts money back into your business. Get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know need to make. By signing up for a free account, go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry. Well, have you ever sat back and ended up professionally in life when you consider where you started? My next guest seems to be on a journey similar to many of us. Bruce Jackson is an Associate General Counsel at Microsoft and Managing Director for Strategic Partnerships out of the present at Microsoft's office. Born in Brooklyn, he studied law at Georgetown University and spent a decade working in entertainment law with some of the top music talent in the country. He's got a new book out. It's called Never Far From Home. Bruce, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and you are. And I and I love the New York accent, so I really appreciate that. Being from uh, New Jersey and now living in Chicago and Arizona, I don't hear it too often. <laughs> I'm glad you hear it. So, what was really? Tell us about your background and why title the book "Never Far From Home." Oh, my background. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, pre-gentrified Crown Heights. Uh, predominantly a poor area. I grew up in a single parent household with my mother and five other brothers and sisters. Uh, We lived in public assistance, um, to be quite honest with you. That's food stamps and other government subsidies. And after a certain period living in Brooklyn, we moved to Manhattan, which is a public housing project. And public housing, for those of you who don't know what the project is, and we happened to move directly across the street from Lincoln Center. Mm. So one of the ironies is that when I grew up exactly. in Brooklyn, I didn't, I didn't know I was poor. Because right. everyone was poor in Brooklyn where I grew up. But when I moved to Lincoln, next to Lincoln Center, I realized there was a difference. Because on the other side of the street, people were not middle class. They were wealthy, right? And so I knew at that point there was certainly a difference in terms of their lifestyles. And so, you know, I hear I interview a lot of people that are able to pull them out, sell themselves out of their their original economic situation and move to a different socioeconomic situation. How would you do that? And what made you think you could do that? Well, I I didn't quite think I could do it, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what kind of motivated me to do it. I, I think one of the things when we talk about growing up in the inner city and people are still, everyone wants to live a better life, but they just don't see how, right? I think that's just the reality. And I tell people all the time, no one's smarter than anyone else. If you take someone from an affluent area and anywhere in the country and put them in a urban setting and public housing, that person may not do well. It's all about environments and resources. And if you take someone out of a public housing and put them in an affluent area, that person will, probably do extremely well. So what motivated me, um, because I want to quit several times, right? Living in the inner city, you always have one foot in, one foot out. And I wanted to quit. The last time I went to college and I called my mother and said I wanted to come home. And she said, if you're in that much pain, come home. I said, this is difficult. This is just too much for me. And she said, come home. And then I had to call my aunt follow that up. And I kind of expected what she would say. Her response was, well, Bruce, if you come home, were you going to go back to the projects? And I said, I'm not sure. She said, what are you going to do? You want to work for Chase Manhattan Bank in the basement, making copies, which is what I did prior to going to high school. I said, I'm not sure. And then she finally stated that, listen, your grandmother picked cotton. Your grandmother could not look white people in the face. She had to address them by saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And she cleaned people houses her entire life. Your mother picked cotton and had to do the same. I picked cotton. There's no one in our family that ever graduated from college, not just your generation, but anyone. Um, So and you're going to give up on them. And she hung up. And at that point, I realized it wasn't for me. I was doing it for those three women and for the generations that passed. And for the generation ahead. And, and that was my motivating 
force to keep me going. Despite all the obstacles and challenges that I went through along the course, I always reflect upon that conversation. You know, it's so interesting to me because a long time ago I read this book called There Are No Children Here about the projects in Chicago. And I think that you realize that if you grew up in that environment, you would be a different person. And I think a lot of people that don't grow up in that environment think, well, I'm special. Even if I grew up in that environment, I'd still succeed where I am today. And it's not true. It's really hard. It, it had to take something like the conversation from your aunt to actually realize just where you need to get to go and how difficult it is. No, I, I think you're right. So one of the reasons I'm writing the book, really, for the point that you stated, is to really inspire people to break through despite this situation. We certainly can have another discussion about the system, why people are still living that way. But that's for another time, another date. And But I'm telling people, let's not spend a lot of time focusing on the system and why it's like that. Let's focus on how we can make changes. And more importantly, what I'm trying to do is just inspire people to break through despite this situation. That's all people. That's immigrant. That's women. That's people in rural. That's people in urban America as well. Because we all have obstacles and challenges as people are part of the LGBTQ plus community. That's the obstacles and challenges. And what I'm trying to do, uh, Barry, is really also bring give proximity to those who are privileged. And if you with proximity, I hope that we can get empathy and with empathy, we get support and people can support us along the journey. And that's been proven. And I'll give you an example. When I had a discussion with my colleagues at Microsoft and we were talking about diversity and I told them a story about a young professional, African-American professional who got arrested because he didn't have his insurance card and he ended up spending the night in jail because he was just driving through his community. And their response was, Bruce, you're kidding me. That just doesn't happen. That happen <laughs> I read about it every day in the paper. Bad news. Right. And then when I said to them, that happened to me, everyone's jaws dropped. Mm-hmm. They said, it happens to you? You closed a hundred million dollar, a billion dollar deal, and it happens to someone like you? We must do something about it. So that's the proximity and the empathy and the support that I'm trying to get from people as well, as well as giving people who are like me, who don't really want to share their story as authentically because they think it may hinder their career, that I think is the most powerful tool that we all can use to inspire the next generation. And so that's what I'm trying to do as well. So why do you call it never far from home? Is it because you really feel connected to the past and that's one of the reasons you kept going even though it seemed impossible at the time, especially in college? I, I think you're right. That's that's exactly one of the reasons. Another reason is because the irony is that Microsoft Office, where I operate and close $100 million deals, are, is really just a mile away from where I grew up in the projects. And in addition to that, I go back very often to the projects in which I grew up or other projects in Brooklyn or the Bronx where my family and friends live. So it's always a part of me, right? That's where I grew up. And I'm I'll never separate myself from them or that community. I love when you talk about, you know, bringing the proximity to affluent people. Do you think that more affluent people that can help this don't care or they just don't know or a combination of both? Well, well, some may not care, but I think there are a lot of good people out there who just don't know. Right. Prior to the George Floyd situation, I mean, people now recognize some of the injustice that occurred. But I think and they are now trying to help change. So I think people don't know. It's about educating people and bringing them into it so they can really see the obstacles and the challenges that people have. And what people are really asking for is nothing more than leveling the the playing field and make sure that all of us start at the one yard line as opposed to others starting at the 50 and some at the one. It's just fatiguing to try to catch up to people when they have that much of a head start. But it can be done and it has to be done so we don't leave any brilliant minds behind, another generation of brilliant minds behind in the process. But will it ever really be a level playing field? I mean, I, I, I grew up, you know, white middle class in New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, my parents were able to pay half for college. I got a job with IBM. They paid for business school. I mean, how can people catch up when people like me were born in like second and third base? 
Well, you know how they'll, first of all, I think ultimately I'm very optimistic. We will reach a point where it will be a level playing field. I think how do people catch up is how I caught up, right? I realized that people were fortunate and they had a head start and I had to catch up. So there was two things that really drove me in addition to the women in my life. It was the quote by Frederick Douglass, there's no struggle, there's no progress, realizing that I'm going to have to struggle. And it's going to be painful for me to catch up. And there's another poem by Longfellow that talks about the height reached and kept by great men were not attained by sudden flight. But while they were while their companion were asleep, they were tolling up what's during the night. And that just means you have to work harder than other people. The average person doesn't want to work more than the minimum time required. If it's a nine to five job, for example, at five o'clock, they leave. If you stay to six, you'll catch them over time. So you can catch people because people don't really want to put in the time and the effort, the average person. So you can catch them over time. But it is fatiguing. Right. So, so I love what you say is that you don't expect necessarily the system to get everybody at the starting line at the same time. It's just the people that are behind. They got to work harder. Right. They got to work harder, unfortunately. But I, I expect at some point the system will create an environment where everyone has the resources to be successful. For example, we're talking about broadband is now a major issue. Broadband's the gatekeeper, right? And there's a lack of broadband in rural area as well as urban area. And broadband, for example, is the gatekeeper to one, jobs. That's where people look for jobs. That's where people get trained, is the gatekeeper to education. And we've witnessed that during the pandemic. So we got to get broadband in all communities so people don't fall further behind. So, no, the system has to play a role in making sure there's equality for all. So you also talk about what helped you in your life is also the women. Tell us about the women. Well, well, the women, as I stated, I said, as my grandmother, um, as my mother and my aunt, those are the people who were the, the source of my inspiration and my motivation to drive forward. And I gave an example when I talked about the conversation I had with my aunt when I was ready to drop out of school. So those are the people that supported me even financially the best they could. And what I mean by their support financially, that was basically giving me food stamps when I was in college, right, to survive, right? That's the type of support. In your case, you said your family paid for tuition. Well, they couldn't, but they gave as much as they could give, whether it's food stamps or whether it's the pittance part of the pittance they were receiving from public assistance, their monthly check. So those are the type of support and moral support. Yeah. My, my, my parents paid for half, but school was only $4,000 a year at that point. So it wasn't right. that expensive. So you go to college, but then you also go on to law school. That amazes me. So how'd you make that jump and why? Well, initially, ironically, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I used to watch Perry Mason, so that's why I wanted to be a lawyer. Of course, all of us did. That probably was unrealistic, to be quite honest with you. Um, But then later in life, I wanted to be more of a civil rights criminal attorney because I saw the injustice that was taking place in my community. But ironically, um, after college, I got an offer from Arthur Anderson, which is a big eight accounting firm. I got an offer from most of them. And the recruiter at that point asked me what I really wanted to do. And I said, I want to go to law school. And she explained what the package was that Arthur Anderson was offering me. But then on the other side of her mouth, she said, don't take it. Go to law school. Wow. And at that point, there was a lot of mentors and people in my life who came in my life at the right time. Right. And intervened and helped me make the right decision. So I went to Georgetown at that point. Um, and end up doing pretty well. And I end up not going to practice criminal law. I end up actually becoming a tax attorney at first because of my love and interest for tax law. Well, I don't heard too many people say my love and interest for tax law on this show. You're right. Most people <laughs> don't. That, that's the irony about it. But what, but Barry, what I loved about it is that you look through the code, you can't find the answer, you go to the regulations. And then if it's not there, then you go to the historical history, right? The House Ways and Mean or the Senate Finance and find out why they enacted such a law and what was the purpose behind it, whether it was even logical. So to me, that was just fascinating. And in fact, that's probably the 
if people ask me, what do I miss the most? What area of law, entertainment, technology, or tax? It's, it's really tax, ironically. So, so, so April 15th is your favorite time of year. Well, I Forget don't like Christmas. Actual, <laughs> I don't like the actual, actually the whole thing about paying it. out tax returns. I did right. tax law, which is the history of certain code sections. So, so how'd you make your way to Microsoft? Well, I was practicing entertainment law at the time. And what I tell a lot of young attorneys or just business people, period, my philosophy is you have to look at where the business is, where it was in the past, where it is today, and be strategic and figure out where it's headed. And so I do the same thing with my career. So I looked at the entertainment business and I knew where it was and where it was at the time I was practicing and where it was heading. And it was heading in a totally different place. When we talk about digital transformation today, well, the digital transformation for the music industry took place in 2000, right? right. It was a physical platform where you get, a hard, you get an album. But in 2000, Napster came along and now it became digital. And people would now download songs that they want. So it turned the whole music industry upside down. And so when someone told me Microsoft was looking for someone to help bridge technology and music, I thought it was a great opportunity for me to actually join a technology company, gain the experience, and after one or two years, come back to entertainment law and have a competitive advantage over all the other entertainment attorneys practicing because no one really knew what was going on. So I was kind of one of the first to leave the music industry to practice entertainment technology law. So, so you, it says in your bio that you struggled at first early at Microsoft. And I can imagine anybody going from Brooklyn, New York to Seattle, Washington, even just for the weather is difficult. Talk about that. Well, when I went to Microsoft, I was the third African-American attorney hired in 2000. And by the time I joined one left, so it was just two of us. So third of all time or third of that year? No, the third. Third total since the beginning of Microsoft. Since the beginning of Microsoft, absolutely. And so what happened was, so I was there, and it was lonely there. And it was lonely because, one, my colleagues didn't, Microsoft wasn't very diverse at that point, and Seattle wasn't very diverse. I would see, if I was lucky, maybe one African-American a day. And my colleagues didn't really include me, right, on lunches or after-work events or weekend events. Um, and like I said, the city of Seattle wasn't very diverse. So at some point, probably two years after being there and going through that, I actually told Microsoft, I'm ready to leave. And my exact words, I'm not negotiating. I'm going back home. And if it wasn't for the intervention of Brad Smith, who's now our vice chair and president, said, no, Bruce, we value you and we're going to try to get you back to New York, and which he did. Um, and promised that he would make Microsoft a more diverse place, which he did. Um, I would not have been, I would not be here today, to be quite honest with you. Two years after joining Microsoft, I was ready to leave, and 23 years later, I'm still here. Why do you think that? What do you think Brad Smith saw? Why do you think he stepped up and thought that you staying and having a more diverse workplace was important? I think that Brad is extraordinary in that respect. I think that one, he just valued the work that I was doing, one, so it was important for me to stay because I demonstrated my ability. But I think in terms of diversity and inclusion, I guess early on he realized the value of it. I think he had exposure of being around people of color and in the early stages of his life, and he realized the benefit and the value that diverse minds can bring to the table. And he's been a strong advocate of that within the industry, technology industry, and within the legal profession. We're talking with Bruce Jackson, who is the Associate General Counsel at Microsoft, and his new book called Never Far From Home. Bruce, you talk a lot about, in, in, in tell, retelling your story, mentorship and sponsorships. And I think that when I talk to small business owners, the one thing they say that's really enabled them to be successful is finding a mentor to help them. How do you find that right person? Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You can work hard, but working hard is not enough. You need the mentors, but you also need the sponsors, people who can invest political capital and really make the difference. Um, And sometimes those things, to your point, happen organically. 
and sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you got to be pretty pretty strategic about it, right? You can't sit back and wait for it to happen. So I think what you do is look for businesses, if it's a business or a person that you would like to be like, you would like to model their career or their business model. And you call them up and you have that discussion as to whether he or she would want to be a mentor. And the same holds true for a sponsor. If you're looking for a sponsor and if it doesn't happen organically, you have to be strategic. But I think you go to them and also offer what you can provide to them, right? If it's a sponsor, what I have done in the past, I'll say, what can I do to help you? Because it's about building a relationship at first. So, Bruce, what's the difference between a sponsor and a mentor? Well, to me, a mentor is just someone, not just someone, it's someone who can help you maneuver around a particular, if it's a company you work for, a company and tell you how things are done and how do you deal with certain people based on their experience. A mentor is someone who would invest political capital on your career growth. Oftentimes in any company, there are closed door sessions in terms of opportunities. And you want one of those people who are influential in the business to actually state and raise your name as someone who could potentially have a particular job, right? So that's the main difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And can you actually go up to people and say, hey, I'd really like you to be my mentor or you'd really like me my sponsor or or as it happened to have to happen more organically? Well, I think it doesn't it's not going to always happen organically. Right. So you can't wait for that. So I think there isn't anything wrong with you approaching someone and say, I'm looking for a mentor. And would you mind being my mentor? If it's a sponsor, I would probably look at what they're doing and what their priorities are if they're in a company and say, I notice this is your priority. Um, how can I help you? Or these are some of the ways that I think you can help. You can meet your priorities. So I think I would offer something up to a sponsor in right. terms of how can you help them meet some of the priorities that he or she may have. And some people may say no, right, Bruce? Like, it's not the right time. Um, I don't have an interest. A, a variety of things, right? But, but that's fine. You just move yeah, on. Right. And Find somebody else. You move on. Find someone else. So you also put in your bio here that that you believe that some people delete the early struggles of pro, uh, in their careers um, and social media encourage the pe- appearance of perfection. I always thought that when people were successful later in their career, they went back and they made what they struggled a lot more difficult. Do you think people delete those parts? I think sometimes people would delete. Yeah, they, they delete what their struggle was, right? Because they just don't want to really amplify it. And as I stated earlier in this discussion, one of my goals is really to have people who have, quote unquote, been successful to basically reveal their journey so others can follow it. So that's really part of my goal. Let's reveal your journey. But, but Americans love a comeback story. They love a success story, right? So don't you think people want to say, listen, this is really, really difficult and this is where I can. Now, if they never become successful, Bruce, whether financially or socially, whatever it is, people don't reveal that part, right? We don't want people that, you know, there's no comeback story. Um, I, I guess I was surprised when I read this. Give us an example of, of I guess, someone maybe in the public eye you feel uh, has kind of deleted those stories. Well, well, it's a lot, right? I think there are there even some of my colleagues, right? Not just African-American, but even immigrants. They'll say, Bruce, you know what? That's my story, but I didn't want to share it because I don't know how people would react to the fact that that's my background. My background is similar to yours, right? I see. You know, it's interesting also because I do believe that social media encourages this idea of perfection, this whole idea of you're living your best life, which I think really is harmful in the long run. What do you think? No, no, I agree wholeheartedly wholeheartedly with you. I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, I think that people just need to share their stories, right? The hard and the bad. Everything's not, it's not, a, it's not easy. I mean, it sounds great. That's a great picture to paint, but that's not reality. You know, I, re- I remember, I think it was when I wrote my first book in the early 2000s, I talked about my struggle with diabetes and depression and uh, anxiety. And a lot of, after I wrote that book, a lot of people emailed me and said, listen, I've struggled through the same thing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I think w- people don't share it enough because they don't want to be vulnerable. No, and I think that's exactly the point I'm raising. And that's what I'm getting from 
colleagues, right? Whether it's in Microsoft or out, it's like, thank you for sharing it. Now you're perhaps creating a safe space for us all to share what our journey was. And that's what I want to do. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is I thought that the picture on the cover of your book, Never Far From Home, was a very interesting choice. Can you describe the picture to the audience and why you chose that? Uh, The picture is me standing really in front of Fordham University in the city uh, with my mother and my sister. And it's showing me how I really grew up, right? I have a keychain around my neck. It's not really a keychain. It's a shoelace around my neck. I have tattered shorts. I have no shirt on. And I have old uh, sneakers, right? Um, So it's just showing how I lived and what life was like for me. So that's kind of the reason I painted. I try to paint that picture. This is what life was like for me. A poor kid growing up in Manhattan. And many people look at that picture and they're surprised that it's a kid who grew up in Manhattan. They, they think I'm more grew up in a rural area based on the way in which I was dressed. But I just want to send a powerful message is that's me then. And this is me now. There's a transformation and, and you can actually overcome whatever obstacles that you have before you. So, Bruce, do you think that anyone can really overcome the obstacles or they need to have mentor and sponsorships early in life? It was your mother and your aunt. And if you don't have those people, how do you seek them out? Because they may not be in your family. I think, again, I think anyone I think the message I want to send is anyone can overcome obstacles. Right. I think that. Right. If you don't have I didn't really seek a lot of them out. A lot of them seek me out. Right. You're fortunate. I think yeah. what I'm trying to state to people that if there's people you want to emulate, seek them out. Right. There's certainly a path. Right. You seek them out and, and you ask them, particularly if you're young, people want to help young people. And there are a lot of people who want to help. And I think people have to be open to accept help from a wide variety of people, not just people who look like you. And that's been my journey. Right. People from different ethnicity has helped me out along my journey. So, so just tell again, I have one more question. Tell us about your current work at Microsoft and the difference you're trying to make there now. Well, I think that I'll just tell you when I started at Microsoft, I supported was the digital media division coming from entertainment, which is a fantastic job. And then what I, and we helped basically Microsoft create the Windows Media Play. And then I had to go and work with all my other colleagues to get content in Windows Media format. Fantastic job. Went from there supporting a $20 billion U.S. business. And then from there, a $15 billion regulated industry business. And now I'm the executive for New York City. Um, help other internal clients approach customers about digital transformation, actually have the relationship with New York City government as well. And then I also work with other strategic 500 companies on various initiatives, right? There may be initiative with some banking institution where they have financial literacy. We have digital literacy. So the goal is how can we combine the two to make a more impactful sort of Mm -hmm. initiative? out there. So those are the type of things that I'm doing now. So my, my son is graduating from NYU in computer science in May. Maybe he can call you and you can give him, he can give you some, you can give him some advice. Hey, you know, it's all about one helping the other. I'll That's right. Ordered, happy to help. So, so do you go to Lincoln Center now or it's like, no, they didn't want me then. I don't want them now. Well, Lincoln Center, I, that's when I opened the taxi doors at Lincoln Center and the book. Yeah, I performed at Lincoln Center, ironically, because I was involved with the, the arts. Wow. Um, so I certainly walk through Lincoln Center all the time. I go to Amsterdam Houses, right, because I still take the train. Wow. Wow. It's a, it's really a great story and a great book. Where can people, Bruce, catch up with you and learn more about uh, your journey? Uh, you can certainly catch up with me. Um, I'm, I'm at Microsoft. Uh I think in terms of my journey, I would say just reach me directly. I'm typically LinkedIn is the best place from a business perspective to reach out to me. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. This is AMA 20 WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. My work with thousands of small business owners over the last 20 years inspired me to write my next book on how to make changes. 
Well, that's not exactly true. More accurately, my frustration and the resulting challenges working with small business owners forced me to write this new book. Um, let me explain. I'm often asked by companies and small business owners that I don't know to help them. Typically, they're feeling stuck by a problem and their companies can't move forward. After analyzing the situation, we mutually decide on a go-forward strategy. I help them assemble a detailed plan to make any changes in the critical success factors and actions that need to be completed. They agree that taking these actions will help them solve their issue for their company and make them more money. And then almost nothing happens. Unfortunately, most small business owners implement a few easy steps, but never take the critical or difficult ones that could make a difference. This has long frustrated me since we worked really hard on putting together this plan, and at the beginning, we were both excited about the result. I wrote my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make to figure out why small business owners do not make the changes or take the actions that they know will help them reach their goals. Where is the gap between sincere intent to make these changes and the actions to actually do it? What holds most people back and keeps them stuck on the same path over and over again? Why are they still so comfortable in not making these changes and staying on a path that clearly doesn't work for them? One thing is it's not adding to their happiness and it's not adding to their feeling success. What steps do they need to take to slowly break free and start to make those changes today that will help them in the long run? In my new book, I reveal much of the psychological research around why change is just so hard for so many people and real life strategies that every small business owner can employ right now to make the changes they need to make in their companies to grow. So get my new book, Change Masters. Remember, I'm not trying to convince you to make a change, but rather help you make the changes you already know you need to take. I just hate the way big banks treat small businesses. They're always a gotcha. High fees, no rewards, minimum balances. So what's in it for you? Now comes a bank that gets small businesses. Truly Financial gives you a corporate visa card, a checking account, and up to 2.5% cash back on every single dollar your business spends. That's why I'm partnering with them to bring you a special offer. Go to trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and learn about how you can get all these benefits for your company and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, How to Make the Changes You Already Know You Need to Make When You Open an Account. So go to trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and truly spelled T-R-U-L-Y and get a free copy of my book, Change Masters. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz. Now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Well, I remember when we broke ground for my new home in Scottsdale it was February of 2020, just as the pandemic started. I remember calling my pool company up, asking them for a steep discount, because in my words, I said, this is the last pool you're ever gonna build for the next three years. And boy, was I wrong. My next guest will set us up in the right direction. Michael Wagner was born in California, but grew up as a military brat who lived in many spots and traveled around the world. He had leadership roles for Coastal Train Technologies, which was acquired by DuPont over a 19-year career. He's now president of Pool Scouts, and Michael oversees the business and works to drive growth and ensure financial support. Michael, welcome to the, sh welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Barry. Looking forward to the conversation. Okay, so we now know what happened three years ago, right? I was really wrong. I lost lunch with the owner of the pool company. A lot of times during recessions or downturns, people start spending money, but it seems like the price of pools only went up. What happened? Well, it was an interesting uh, time for the pool business, and we were one of these fortunate pockets of, uh, of growth amidst uh, you know just craziness what happened. But obviously, we know the results now. People were, were forced to spend more time in their homes and you know things that they normally did for uh, for fun were unavailable, including community pools were closed. 
Uh, so what this drove was really growth in in home spending, and pools were the beneficiary of that. Pool growth over the past couple of years has been unprecedented, and 24% across the country. Uh, some markets like Florida and Texas, over 30% growth year wow. over year. So people have been uh, building pools like crazy and spending more time and money at their homes than they ever have in the past. So were you surprised? You know, when the pandemic hit, um, we were very concerned for our franchisees, obviously, around the country thinking, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And uh, right out of the gate, our business was deemed an essential service. <laughs> and because we were doing work in people's backyards, you know, not having to come face to face contact with them. And largely our technicians are by themselves in a vehicle traveling around to people's backyards doing work. We were in a pretty safe environment. Uh, both for our workers and technicians, for our franchisees, and then for the homeowners themselves. Uh, so right out of the gate, you know, we were concerned for about a month, and then we realized, you know, we were going to be busy, and uh, we were in fact super busy and had been since the, since that happened. You know, it, it, in a sense, it is an essential service because, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, at my house that has a pool year round, but if it doesn't get cleaned every week, it ends up being a petri dish, and it's a problem. It is, and uh, you know, when pools got uh, ignored or when they get ignored, they become uh, really places for mosquitoes to breed <laughs> so biohazard uh, exactly exactly so uh yeah we uh we, we've been uh, you know really fortunate and then that has helped us with uh you know with our franchise growth uh as well and you know our franchisees were happy that they were part of pool scouts as opposed to some other businesses which you know shut down during the pandemic and uh, and really were, were challenged we were uh, we were laden with opportunities for growth, which is great. You know, it's always interesting to me when we go through a recession, and in my professional life, I've been through many of them. It's kind of like musical chairs. You know, things are going really great. The economy's expanding. Then all of a sudden, the music stops, and you're not quite sure who's going to have a chair, right? I mean, if you owned a pool service or you owned a cycling store, uh, you were in great shape, right? But if you owned a, uh, let, let's say, uh, a ki indoor kids play area or something like that, it, it was a problem. You kind of sort of went out of business overnight. Yeah, it, you know, here at, at my company at Buzz Franchise Brands, uh, we have uh, three brands uh, during the pandemic, one of which is Pool Scouts, which I talked about, another which is Home Clean Heroes, which is a home cleaning business, and then uh, we have a brand called British Swim School, where we teach kids how to swim in, in leased pool space. And that business was shut down for four months. So we were scrambling to work closely with franchisees to figure out the, their plans going forward. And we were very fortunate to be able to, you know, to not lose any franchisees during that time frame. But it took a lot of work, and those businesses were not generating any revenue for four months straight. So, uh, so, yeah, to, to your point, there's lots of opportunities out there. You know, restaurants were struggling clearly uh, in, in many ways and, and other businesses. But really, uh, you know, things that had to do with the home, especially things outside the home, um, were really in a fortunate, you know, fortunate place. And so the reaction of your franchisees was worried. But then when things started getting going, they were happy. Like I talked to my local cycling store and he goes, I have to tell you, the pandemic is the best that ever happened to me a store in the last 20 years. How are you guys going to use this to really build on that success? Well, so you've had all these pools that have been built around the country. And, uh, you know, our job is to go out and clean and maintain and keep them working. Uh, so the growth has been substantial around the country, which has been great. So all those pools that have been built need to be maintained. Uh, and that's, that's where we've seen growth. On top of that, we've added you know, a lot of new franchisees across the country. So we've really increased our footprint now. We're in 18 different states. Uh, we have 49 franchisees in 115 territories around the country. Last year alone, we opened... 17 new franchisees uh so you know they they started their business in 2022 
you know, built their customer base and will continue to grow upon that. So really it's been, it's been a, uh, you know, fortunate to have growth on all fronts, the, uh, the geography, the number of customers that we serve and the number of franchisees that are serving them. So have the demographics uh, of who owns pools changed? I mean, the price of installing a pool, Michael, certainly has gone up. But do do different people have pools than they had five years ago? Well, it, I would say over the past couple of years, uh, because a lot of home projects and pool construction are often tied to home equity and, uh, and, and, and borrowing money, um, you know, historically over the past couple of years, the price of money has been inexpensive and home values have been super high driving up equity. Uh, so, you know, that growth has been both at the, you know, the lower end of the pool side and then the higher end, of course, continues uh, and will continue to grow. Um, so we've seen, you know, an influx of new pool owners around the country. The demographics are pretty similar to what they've been historically um, now that we're going into, you know, a, a time where money's a lot more expensive and real estate concerns are out there, the, you know, the growth will be more limited to the higher end side of pools. Um, so you'll, we'll see a drop off of, you know, of, of the other side of things as far as the, the pool owners that would have, you know, borrowed money to, to get a, get a pool in place as opposed to, you know, kind of just paying for it. Um, but we've really seen such great growth an unprecedented growth that, you know, the, the pools are out there, they need to be maintained. And our typical customer does not want to do it themselves. They want to, you know, pay us to, to do it. Um, and that's really represented in, in who we service, uh, you know, across the country. Uh, we, we know who they are and we know how to target those, tar- those households as well. Well, when my pool was installed, the installer showed me how I could test and clean my own pool. And at that point, I said, well, maybe I should have someone else do it. It was a little bit too complicated for me. What What is the profile of the person that starts or buys a Pool Scouts franchise? And what's the economic bargain for them? Yeah, we have a, a varied group across the country, which is uh, really neat with franchising to be able to you know to learn and, and know your franchisees. Um, we have, you know, folks that have been in the corporate world on, you know, in business. Uh, we have a few veterans in our system, which have made really great franchisees. Um, you know, and we have some folks that have, that have had other businesses as well in the past. It's really a varied group. You know, in our business, there are pretty clear roles for running the business. You have really an office side of things, and then you have a field side of the things. So the field work are technicians traveling around in branded vehicles in people's backyards every day, cleaning between, you know, eight and 20 pools a day, depending on where they are in the country. And then the office side is really answering the phone, scheduling the jobs, managing, you know, the inventory and ultimately hiring and, and retaining great technicians. That role is often played by the franchisee. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in our business. We like folks that are comfortable with a lot of moving parts, but also following a business model, which is, you know, really germane to franchising in general uh, and, and following the, the number of transactions and, uh, you know, and, and customers too. our mature franchisees will service over a thousand customers. So that's a lot of relationships to, to manage uh, ultimately and, and people that are what I would say people, people, they can deal well with customers and then they can hire and retain great people to, to work in their franchise as well. So there's a lot of people out there that, that clean pools, right? How do you differentiate yourself from everybody else? Yeah, that's a great question, Barry. And, you know, it is a, a business that historically has not had the most professional uh, reputation. And so our ability to stand out is pretty substantial. It starts with the branding and marketing to attract customers uh, to a brand that's national now. Also, we, you know, we back up what we do with a, a scout guarantee across the country. Across the country, uh, our technicians show up in branded vehicles. They're licensed and insured. Um, they're wearing a uniform. They've been background checked. So the, the the technicians that are in the backyard are differentiated. And then, of course our communication tools and tools to run the business. You know, we text customers when we're on the way, we send them a before and after a report that shows before and after pictures 
all the chemistry reading and who was there and what was done. Uh, we use a net promoter score program across our franchise system to rate uh, the technicians and the, and the service that's delivered. And then we you know, are very transparent about those results. Um, so really, it's it's communication with the customer. It's the systems to, to operate and manage the business. Uh, and it's the professionalism that we offer with the, with the service. Of course, we train people on how to do, uh, you know, the pool cleaning, maintenance and repair the right way. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got a team of technical support folks and a team of business support folks that really offer up that support to our franchisees. But Michael, from my standpoint, again, being a new pool owner about three years now, it's kind of a blind buy to me because I don't really know. I don't really know what goes on in that pool. Right. Uh, except if obviously it doesn't look right or, you know, someone gets sick. So. How do you, I guess, how do you build that trust if it's people really don't know what's going on and what goes into cleaning a pool? So, you know, one of the things we've uh, not had problems with has been customer acquisition, Barry, uh, you know, it, it really. And, and one of the things we do clearly is market. So we're, we're in, in the, whether it's direct mail, digital marketing or community oriented marketing, we're in front of those prospective customers on a regular basis. You know, in the beginning, we're selling our professionalism to a prospective customer. And then it's about really just delivering on that. Uh, so really, you're, you, to your point, Barry, if your pool's clean and you've paid somebody to, to maintain it and you don't have to do it yourself, you're happy. Um, in order to kind of keep that maintained, you know, the professionalism and, and the service high, we, we do a great job of communicating with the customers. Uh, and then ultimately delivering, uh, you know, what we our promises, which is perfect pools, scouts honor. Uh, so really, it's it's just once you're in that in that backyard, it's about retaining a great customer relationship, the trust of the customer, and delivering high quality service. So lots of tools and training that we use to deliver that high quality service, um, you know, through the technicians of the franchisees, backing up the work that we we provide. And then, uh, you know, and delivering upon that with the professional approach that I mentioned. So, so there's been no problem with your kind of your um, your tagline with the Boy Scouts of America, I assume. <laughs> no, no, we uh, we fortunate we've trademarked trademarked uh, perfect Boy Scouts honor, and uh, yes, we're we're all set with that. So, is the model any different in climates where people don't swim in their pools year round, or they drain their pools? Yeah, yeah. So draining pools doesn't really happen to keep, to be honest with you that because of uh, water. But but regardless, we are in like I said, eighteen states. Uh, we're in Connecticut. We're in Idaho. We're in Utah. We're in uh, Michigan. So we're in, we're in markets where are there are very seasonal markets. Um, Barry, that's one of the misnomers about the business. First of all, the season's always a lot longer than than folks expect it to be, and we and we you know are able to demonstrate demonstrate that to franchisees. But in those seasonal markets, we have a material business about opening and closing pools, uh, and that is a predictable, schedulable, schedulable service as we get the customer relationship going. Uh, so in those markets, like I mentioned, and we're in Maryland, we're in, you know, lots of markets where we open pools, uh, which can start in March, uh, depending on the market, uh, and we close pools, and we, we close pools in, in December in lots of markets as well. And then we service those pools throughout the course of the season. Those opening and closings are great customer acquisition opportunities and a, and a great opportunity for us to get that regular recurring service as well. Uh, so, yeah, we, we're in those markets and then we're in Florida and we're in Texas where we service pools 52 weeks a year, uh, you know, across the country and, and those, those southern markets, too. Uh, so we really got a great mix and then some hybrid markets like Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, et cetera, uh, Alabama, where we're, you know, maybe less frequent service in the wintertime. Um, but we still service them year-round as well. So is one of the, the keys to being successful operating a Pool Scouts franchise is to get people in the same local geography? Because it's not that expensive for a pool owner to get their pool cleaned every single week. I assume the pools have to be in this similar type of geography so you can make those stops more efficient. 100%, and we really help franchisees do that through marketing 
to get those customers, even when they're they're in the investigative process around our franchise opportunity, we're providing them with the territory maps that demonstrate the number of target households by zip code. That then translates to them into even more uh, geographic, uh, you know, opportunities in neighborhoods and, and sections of town, et cetera. Uh, but we demonstrate those those territories. Then we target market to those folks, like I said, through direct mail, through digital marketing, et cetera. And then we help them build their routes that become tighter and tighter. Our software that we use helps really with the routing efficiency, helps them take a step back, look at the forest rather than the trees and be able to design routes that make efficiency happen uh, as well. But to your point, you know, we have lots of franchisees that would pull up on a street, be able to service four or five customers and, you know, in on the same street or in the same neighborhood, et cetera. And over time, as you would imagine, the routes get a lot more efficient uh, as does the, you know, the gross margins accordingly. Well, Michael, I appreciate you being on the show. If you want to reach Michael, you can go to poolscouts.com. It's Michael, it's great to talk to an industry that I was absolutely, totally 100% wrong about. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate the opportunity. And you're glad I was wrong, right? So you never <laughs> know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. Michael, exactly. thanks, for, thanks for joining us. And I want to thank everyone for joining this week's radio show. I got to thank our sponsor, Truly Financial, banking that puts money back into your business. Get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make by signing up for a free account. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry. Thanks to our incredible staff, our booking producer, Sarah Schaffrin, our in-studio producer, Lady B, our marketing manager, Courtney Gilcrest. If you're successful being, if, if you want to be successful this year, 2023, you got to give me a call. I set up a private line, 773-837-8250, or email me at barry at Remember, love everyone, trust the few, and paddle your own canoe. Have a profitable and passionate week. You can find Barry Moltz on the web at barrymoltz.com or more episodes of Small Business Radio at smallbizradioshow.com. Did you know that you can lose up to 5% on an invoice just because it's an international wire transfer? I know a lot of people are dealing with the same nonsense, and for small business owners, it hurts. I was dealing with the same painful fees too until I found Truly Financial. I like that they're the everyday global bank that business owners actually need. In fact, I like them so much that I'm partnering with them to bring you this special offer. Open a Truly Financial account and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make. It's time to start saving on bank fees. No pain, all gain. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and truly is spelled T-R-U-L-Y and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters.